Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. A few other things we'll get to in our time remaining, but I want to turn our attention to a fascinating new book. Uh, Taking a look and sharing some firsthand stories from corporate Canada of the response to COVID-19 just over two years ago when we first emerged or first entered into this pandemic, one that we're hopefully now emerging from. Uh, The word unprecedented has been thrown around a lot over the last uh, two years, but I mean, it's in a literal sense very true. As uh, the introduction to this book notes, there was no playbook for COVID. So if you're running a, a company and all of a sudden you find yourself in this situation, uh, there, there's no playbook to turn to. Right? There's no one else who has gone through it that you can seek advice from. You're navigating what are truly unprecedented times. Now, obviously, for different industries, the impact was, was different. Uh, you know, airlines, Fitness centers, restaurants, hospitality industry, hotels, resorts were severely impacted by the pandemic. For other industries, it created some challenges. For other industries, it it did open some doors even potentially. Uh, But there was a lot of scrambling, a lot of pivoting, a lot of figuring out what does this mean for our customers? What does this mean for our product? What does this mean for our employees? How can we be a part of the solution? You know, some companies pivoted to uh, producing things that, that we needed to respond to the pandemic. Other companies had to pivot quick to make sure that we didn't run out of things that we need. So, like I say, this is an opportunity to, to hear directly from uh, the CEOs of some major companies, you know, what that pivot was like. Uh, this is all compiled in a new book. It's called Unprecedented, Canada's Top CEOs on Leadership During COVID-19. I'll let you know as well, the net proceeds from the sale of this book being uh, donated to the United Way's Centrade Canada for COVID recovery across Canada. Joining us uh, are the, I guess, the two authors or those who, who compiled and edited this book. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is Andrew Willis. He's a business columnist for the Globe and Mail. Andrew, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Rob. And also joining us is Steve Mayer. He's an investment banker, president of Green Hill Canada. Steve, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having us. Uh, let me start with you, Steve, because it seems like, you know, sort of the genesis of this book sort of came from you, or at least the conversations you were having just over two years ago. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so take you back about two years to March, April, May of 2020. The very scary times when uh, everyone knew that we're in a pandemic, but no one really knew what it meant, how to stop it or mitigate it, and what the downside was going to be. Uh, everyone remembers those scary times. And around that time, or during that time, I was speaking to clients, CEOs across the country in various industries, and hearing from them uh, how they were running their businesses. And really, um, as you mentioned, there's, there's, there was no playbook. And uh, I remember being in business school and uh, learning about product tampering as a crisis management course. And crisis management during COVID was so much more in every every facet. But what I heard from these CEOs, uh, number one, how they're running their business, which I just thought from a business standpoint was fascinating. But more importantly, what I heard was uh, what they were doing for their employees, for their customers, and for their communities. And even though... Uh, the COVID stories were in the media uh, nonstop. No one was really telling the story of how these corporations, these CEOs and their teams were really holding the, comp- the, the, the country together 
and stepping up for their communities in a very significant way. And it really was going counter to uh, the common wisdom that they only cared about profits. But what they were doing was really incredible. So I thought it would be very compelling to uh, have people hear their stories uh, as they tell, as they told them to me. And so they wrote their stories in the first person here for the book. Yeah, and, and Andrew, I mean, obviously, you, you would have been hearing a lot of the same things as you're covering the business world, telling these stories, you know, yourself as, as a journalist. So were some of those conversations that, that you were having or things that you were hearing kind of similar to, to what Steve was hearing from his clients? Oh, very much so. One of our best chapters, you're supposed to love all your children equally. Yes, but look, exactly. One of the best chapters came from WestJet, where Ed Sims was talking about what it was like to be running the airline. And, and, Rob, one of the frustrations that he would have is he'd go to government and say, look, you know, how is this going to work? What should, what should it look like? We, we're going to have to lay off employees here. We're idling our planes. What support are we going to get? And you just couldn't get any answers out of government because the government was struggling with the same unknowns as business was struggling. And so Ed Sims details, you know, how WestJet managed to finance itself, how it, it managed to you know, set aside a lot of the planes and just put special covering on them so they didn't get hurt in hailstorms in Calgary. Um, you know, put the furlong the employees so that knowing that they'd they need the pilots and the skilled mechanics back at some point after the pandemic. And, you know, just making those decisions on the fly without any support at all. And, and occasionally, frankly, with some frustrations over the uh, the lack of interest or, or the lack of sophistication on, on the government front. And and you realize, as Steve was just saying, that these these companies started making decisions based on not only on, you know, what was going to help them financially, but also what was in the best interest of their employees and, you know, how are they going to bring back customers post-pandemic. And and, and you got these, these fascinating trade-offs. Very difficult decisions had to be made. Um, and, and in the book, you get, you get firsthand... Um, guide to to you know how to get to the right place and frankly a lot of ceos also confessing you know here's mistakes we made along the way for with the best of intentions here's where we went wrong and here's what we did to to correct yeah. our mistakes yeah, that's interesting i mean you know steve you, you mentioned andrew mentioned WestJet. i mean air canada good life fitness four seasons hotel and resorts some of the ceos that that share their stories in the book and i mean you know these are companies and industries where this was almost like an existential crisis you know how were they or whether they were going to survive all of this there were some big questions they were facing no, absolutely. And there were, you know, really the book is designed to highlight companies that were in the eye of the storm. Yeah. As you said, airlines and hotels and, you know, um, and gyms like Good Life Fitness, uh, restaurants, yeah. et cetera. Uh, but really, uh, no one was, was immune. And, you know, if you talk about a company like Canadian Tire, for example, um, you know, yes, people still needed their products, but, and it's actually super interesting because, uh, their CEO was appointed. Greg Hicks was appointed as CEO. Went out for a celebratory dinner the same day, and that was the night that the NBA season was canceled. And all of a sudden, oh, wow. he was in the eye of the storm before he could even have a uh, 24-hour honeymoon in, in his new job. But he had to figure out um, how to uh, uh, get their e-commerce business going because no one could come to the stores, and they had, their website was crashing because they weren't used to the volumes. And they went from uh, having really no e-commerce business to speak of. And in 2020, they ended up doing 1.6 billion of sales in e-commerce. So, you know, what, what was, what CEOs needed to do and to really, uh, help their business, um, survive first and foremost, but also then set it up to thrive. Uh, it's really remarkable what, what, uh, many of these, uh, companies accomplished. And, and some of them have 
are, are, are doing well. Some of them are still struggling with the, with the pandemic. Uh, but they've all done heroic things. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And Andrew, I'm sure you wrote about it at the time. You know, I mean, the, the big toilet paper shortage was, you know, was a big story early on in the pandemic. But it spoke to some of those supply chain issues. For So for the kinds of retailers that were able to stay open, that were deemed to be essential retailers, and those companies that are supplying them, they were being asked a lot that in the midst of all of this, you guys got to keep the supply chain going. You got to meet this demand. You got to be ready to respond to what might be really dramatic shifts in, in consumer demand. Well, well, that's right. I mean, and that's an employee management issue. The, the, one of the CEOs who contributed is at a company called Kruger Products, and they are the, the number one toilet paper maker in the country. And, and Tino Bianca, the, the, the CEO, kept telling people, you know, there's not going to be a shortage of toilet paper. You don't need to hoard toilet paper. Nothing he said made any difference. You know, the, the behavior still took place. So, you know, at a time when his employees were worried about the pandemic, Tino was asking him to work extra shifts, you know, to run on the um, run the printing plants on, on extended hours in order to meet the demand from retailers like Costco, even though he knew, you know, there was no real need for all this extra toilet paper. And, and Rob, that went right through the, the consumer chain. You know, we've got a, um, a CEO from a, a drug distribution company called McKesson. They're the owner of the Rexall chain. And they actually had to start rationing drugstores and hospitals on who were hoarding essential pharmaceuticals in fears that the supply chain would break down. So they had to start restricting orders. And again, when your biggest customers are suddenly being told they can't get the drugs they want, those are difficult, difficult conversations. And that's, that's the kind of thing that, um, the, 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 um, the kind of leadership that we're, that we're laying out in the book. And they're, they're pretty compelling stories. Yeah. There's also the story, Steve, about, you know, companies sort of stepping up and saying, you know, what can we do to be a part of the solution? I mean, you know, Canada Goose, their CEO tells an interesting story of how they shifted really quickly in March of 2020 to producing uh, PPE, right? Uh, you know, whatever the, the medical system might need, they, they started churning that out. So it's, it's also an interesting story about, you know, corporations and CEOs sort of looking at a situation and saying, hey, right, how can we help? Exactly. You know, Danny Reese and his team at Canada Goose did an amazing job, and everyone knows and loves their outerwear. But uh, there weren't a lot of people buying buying their products uh, at the start of the pandemic. But uh, you know, at that at that time, uh, no one had any PPE, and our country wasn't producing it. We weren't producing vaccines. We weren't producing PPE. Everyone was trying to figure out how to get it. Uh, you know, Kush Tard, which is Circle K, um, they describe how they actually. Uh, flew a private jet to China to pick up masks uh, for their team. Uh, but, you know, Canada Goose decided, hey, we're, we're going to convert all our production to make PPE. And they did that, and they ended up producing over 2.5 million scrubs and gowns, which is really unbelievable if you think about it, 2.5 million. And uh, in this chapter, Danny also describes just the, the, the pride and the joy that the employees had by being able to contribute. And by the way, Canada, Canada Goose did that all at cost. And so, again, it's just a, another example of companies stepping up for the country during COVID. And I mean, the takeaway from all of this, and, and these are, you know, compelling stories, and, they, you know, they're, they're almost like, you know, novels in a way as they're, you know, navigating this, this, uh, this major crisis. But, you know, you both alluded to it. This is about, you know, learning lessons from all of this. What was once unprecedented can now serve as, as kind of a, a guidebook of sorts going forward as, as companies navigate whatever the, the future might have to throw at us. So, Andrew, what do you want, you know, people, what do you want readers and, and even, you know, corporate Canada to take from this? I, I guess the, 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 
the takeaway, and Steve started to say this, is, is that companies can't be run entirely for profit. I mean, obviously, if you don't make money, you're going to be out of business. But, but it's this idea of stakeholder capitalism, and, and, and you've heard a lot academically around it. But this is what the concept actually looks like. When you're running your company so that the community is well-served, so your, your customers are happy, your employees are well taken care of, you know, those should be considerations for leaders and for boards. And I think that was what this crisis exemplified, was successful companies were able to take into account all sorts of different needs of different constituencies and balance those needs off, as opposed to just being bottom-line focused. And, and to the extent companies were successful, successful in that balancing act, you know, they're, they're coming out of the, the pandemic stronger. But, but to your point, Rob, every CEO that's in this book, every CEO we talk to, um, they all believe that there is another crisis on the horizon. Who knows exactly what it looks like, but, you know, this, this global health crisis showed us that, that we are all linked up and that, that, that our supply chains are vulnerable and, and we as a society need to be strong and resilient. Yeah, I mean, as we're still dealing with this pandemic, I mean, you know, there's there's war in Europe, right? There's, you know, there's there's natural disasters. Right? There, there's a lot of, uh, you know, potential crises on, on the horizon, and, and they could look very different from the one we've just been through. So, Steve, your thoughts on kind of what those, those principles are that, you know, regardless of what the next crisis is, that, you know, lessons learned from this one? Well, there are definitely some common themes that were highlighted by the CEOs. When you read all the chapters in totality, uh, there are incredible stories. Uh, they talk about what they did. They, pro- they provided advice and policy prescriptions as well. But I'd also say that uh, it highlights the, uh, the common activities and actions that they took. So, for example, one uh, important one is that everyone acted um, in a way that was driven by their culture and their values and highlighting what doing the right thing versus versus profitability. Um, the importance of communication with employees and other stakeholders, the importance of creative solutions, uh, importance of coordinating with competitors, even though uh, that's not a natural thing for people to do. And, you know, the list goes on. But I think at the end of the day, it provides really a playbook, which we hadn't had before for the next crisis, which will be very different, whatever it is. But whatever the next crisis is, this provides a playbook for uh, future business leaders uh, to learn from. And I'd also say that a lot of the uh, CEOs in their chapters um, had pointed criticism of the government for lack of direction and other things. Yeah. And so it's really uh, not just for business leaders, but I think for governments and, and, and everyone to learn how uh, corporate Canada stepped up for the country and what are the best practices for the next inevitable crisis. Well, the book is called Unprecedented, Canada's Top CEOs on Leadership During COVID-19. And as mentioned, uh, net proceeds from the sale of the book being donated to the United Way. Andrew Willis, Steve Mayer, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Thanks Rob. All the best to you both. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that is uh, Andrew Willis. He's a, uh, a business columnist for the Globe and Mail. Steve Mayer, investment banker, president of Green Hill Canada. Uh, so together they've compiled and edited this book, which does offer these first-hand accounts of these early days of the pandemic from some CEOs whose companies were right in the center of the storm. So some of it does make for pretty riveted reading. You get the CEO of uh, Canadian Tire, for example, who takes over the job on the very day. Remember that that uh, fateful day? What was it, March 11th of that year when the NBA season was suspended? It just felt like the dominoes all started falling. That That's that person's first day as CEO of Canadian Tire. So what, what did it mean for, for them? So, yeah, there's, there's some, some pretty crazy stories being told here, just being thrust into this crisis and trying to navigate a situation like this as best you could. 
And, you know, companies that, as mentioned, were right in the center, were directly impacted. You know, some, some big Canadian companies, Air Canada, WestJet, Maple Leaf Foods, Talus, Sobeys, the Restaurant Brands International, Cadillac Fairview, we mentioned Canadian Tire, Couchard, Finning, Four Seasons. So all kinds of different industries, all facing really unique and different challenges. So, uh, again, the book is called Unprecedented, Canada's Top CEOs on Leadership During COVID-19. Part of the conversation, I guess, carrying over from yesterday around housing. Now, the prime minister who was in Edmonton earlier today, was in Victoria yesterday, facing a lot of questions about housing and reiterated his government's pledge to build more housing. You know, the budget lays out uh, some steps the government intends on taking, including providing more money to provinces and municipalities, but with the goal of building some 400,000 new homes a year. Then indeed, there is uh, a disconnect between demand for housing and the availability of housing. But what can be done to get those houses built? Now, there's another side to all of this, of course, in that to build a house, you need the materials to build the house. You also need the workers to put those materials together to build the house. And there is a reality right now that is certainly part of the challenge is the labor shortage in the housing industry and some of the supply shortages. So even if there's a desire, even if the political will is there uh, to see new houses built in Canada, is, is that a number we can realistically get to in the short term? How do we address some of these shortfalls that may be holding us back? Well, joining us to talk more about that side of it, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Kevin Lee. He is CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Kevin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I mean, it feels like, you know, certainly the, the housing sector has picked up. We're seeing more homes being built. I know there was some slowdown, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic. But what's the last year been like, first of all? The last year has been very challenging, thanks yeah. to some of the things you were talking about in terms of labor shortages and uh, material and supply chain disruptions and all the rest. That said, I think shockingly, um, you know, last year we had 271,000 housing starts across the country, um, the second highest ever on record. You have to go back wow. to 1976 to get a number as high as that, where they had 273,000. So. Uh, despite all the challenges, uh, you know, we're way up from our historical average of 200 to 210,000 housing starts. So uh, that and that's just only starting to put into the big housing supply deficit that was rightly outlined in the federal budget in terms of looking ahead to build 3.5 million homes over the next decade. That's that's a huge number. It's going to be a challenge, but very importantly, there's the number. Um, and if people have been wondering, you know, why our houses are so expensive, we've had this huge supply demand imbalance, and and so setting out those kinds of targets, I think, is is really important at this stage. Right. Well, we can talk about how we get there, but I mean, just the fact that we're having this conversation, that we're setting these targets, all of the focus on this issue. It is. I mean, how, how encouraged are you by that? It's really important. You know, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, there was, you know, all the synthesis on demand side. Oh, we got to tighten mortgage rules and all the rest. That's right. why house prices are going up. And, you know, that that wasn't the issue. So the idea that we've rightly focused now on supply and numbers in it is really important. And it's going to take collaboration from all three levels of government to get there. I think the federal government has outlined 
you know, the challenge now and, and is starting to put some programming in place to help support that. But a lot of this is going to come down to the municipal level where zoning and bylaws and approval processes and all the rest also need to change in order for us to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if there's that that will, if we can figure out how to cut through this red tape, how do we get from 270000 to to 400000 yeah, it's gonna, we're going to have to step our way towards that. There's no question. Um, now, fortunately, a lot of the supply chain issues are expected to clear up over the next year or two. It's going to be a bit of a tough slog. Uh, but as I said, the fact that we were able to get 271 housing starts last year underway and we there's delays in finishing and closing those homes, but it should, you know, they should still all get completed. Um, so those are all steps in the right direction. Um, it's hopefully the supply chain will come around and that will become less of an issue. Um, and then, yes, you know, we do have labor shortages, um, but we are, you know, we're seeing more young people get interested in the skilled trades. It's a great career, great career opportunities right now. Um, it's also going to take immigration. Um, and there was actually mention of that, you know, in the budget as well, talking about by 2024, getting up to 451,000 immigrants, uh, the majority of which are to be skilled workers. So, um, yep, there are definitely challenges to get there, but uh, laying out that goal, I think, is really important. And, and then we got to work to get there. It's going to take a lot of collaboration at a lot of different levels of government. Yeah. You know, and I mean, housing's not the only sector facing a labor shortage. You know, just last week we were talking on this program about some of the shortages, uh, labor shortages in the um, in the oil and gas sector. I know for trucking, that, that's been an issue for a while. So there are other sectors dealing with that. But I mean, what what's happening in, in the housing industry? Why are we seeing some of these labor shortages? Yeah, well, you're right. It's it's every sector, and that's a function of Canadian demographics, mm-hmm. right? We just have an aging population, and, and baby boomers are at retirement age now. So, you know, we've got 20% of our labor force retiring over the next decade, and we need to backfill, and we're, you know, we're not going to get those out of the traditional sources. You know, when we look at, you know, the normal graduation rates through apprenticeship programs at community colleges and engineering schools, you know, we're going to get maybe two-thirds of that, and we're still a third of the, the people short. Um, so we need more people to look at this as an opportunity. We need the immigration system. And then I think the other big thing is, um, you know, we're going to need to increase our productivity levels across the board. And that's, we need that in housing. I think we'll see more uh, factory-built componentry, um, more panelized construction, more modular construction. And, you know, a modular home isn't any more like a trailer home. A modular home could be, you know, a 1,500-square-foot house, a 3,000-square-foot house that you would have no idea was was built in a factory and, and assembled on site. I think we're going to see more and more of that in the coming years. When it comes to materials, uh, you know, we're well aware of supply chain issues. That's That's been a big issue for some time. I mean... I don't know if that's been totally resolved. I know, you know, what's going on in China right now with COVID is still wreaking a lot of havoc on all kinds of different, uh, you know, supply chains. But in terms of, of housing materials, where are things at with, with some of those supply chain issues? We're definitely still seeing lots of delays and lots of challenges. And, um, you know, appliances is right near the top of the list. And, and uh, especially if you have any kind of specialty orders for uh, for appliances, that's been really tough. But you know, from plumbing to electrical, even wiring, um, it pretty much runs the gamut. Uh, 
that all the different construction materials are taking more time and the more specialized something it is, uh, the harder it is to get. And as, as you mentioned, you know, if it's coming from overseas, um, certainly we still have shipping issues, but uh, hopefully those will start to resolve uh, over the next year or two. Indeed. So do you think that this is, is doable, this, this decade-long target we have? Does it feel like it's achievable? I will say it's not achievable if you don't set the goal. And that's where we are right now. Sort of the gauntlet has been thrown. Um, and it's interesting. You're like questioning the federal government. Well, you've said this number. What are you going to do to get there? Well, they've, you know, they've started. They're talking about a new uh, housing accelerator fund. But that accelerator fund is aimed exactly where it needs to be. It's at municipalities to adjust processes. Um, you know, same with the uh, the labor side. Do we have the labor to do it right now? No, um, but we can build towards it, and we got to take the steps to get there. So, I think setting the target has been hugely important, and now it's about pulling everything in that direction to make that all happen. It'll be a challenge, but if we want to get housing prices you know, back appreciating at a more normal level and not skyrocketing the way we've seen them, and that's not necessarily only new construction at all it's the existing housing stock right which is not affected by labor material shortages all these things that's just good old supply and demand so if we're going to get there it's important we be working towards this well, and that's an important issue we're touching on here too that that even if we're building a, you know four hundred thousand new homes a year that's not something that that should threaten homeowners or those who you know are you know, perhaps their their home is is their retirement plan, right? Those who want to sell that asset at some point. We're not talking about you know cratering housing prices here or anything. Oh, absolutely not. You know, I think you know most estimates are that you know house prices are going to continue to appreciate at a pretty good mm-hmm. clip, which is you know good for existing homeowners and a pretty big challenge if you're a first time buyer, right? So, you know, for people who are looking to you know, you hear a lot like I'm, I'm worried about my kids being able to buy a home. Well, you know, this is part, a big part of the solution is getting more supply online. But getting more supply online is really about getting house prices appreciating, as I said, at a more normal level where you expect a decent return. But, you know, most people don't buy a house with a get rich plan. They no, get exactly. a, They buy a house because they actually want to get out of paying rent <laughs> and start getting some equity and then and controlling their own destiny. It's It's not a get rich plan for most people. It's let me put a roof over my head and start building a little bit of equity in the process. Absolutely. All right. Much more at uh, CHBA. .ca, the Canadian Home Builders Association. Kevin Lee, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, Kevin Lee is the CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association. So, yeah, I mean, these are the people that are going to do it if we want to see 400,000 new houses built every year. You know, these are the companies, the workers that are going to do it. So do you have the workers they need? Do they have the materials they need? Those are some short-term challenges, for sure. But, you know, as he said, first step is, is setting that target. Now, let's see if we can follow through. All right, welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. I, you know, I think over the last uh, couple of months here, uh, I think we're on about 50 days since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the concept of energy security has become a lot more tangible. And it, it has certainly moved, I think, to, to the forefront of the conversation around energy policy, which is where it belongs. But how likely is it that that's maybe going to fall by the wayside? In the weeks and months ahead, you know, for example, if there is a positive resolution to the uh, situation in Ukraine, does energy security sort of fall once again to the back burner? 
It's a new report out from the McDonald Laurier Institute arguing that it needs to remain at the forefront, that energy security matters. This whole situation has proven that it matters, but it doesn't go away if uh, indeed there's a resolution to the situation in Ukraine. Uh, but yeah, there, there is, um, you know, a, a, it, it is at an interesting point here. As the paper says, the global energy transition is now having to confront East versus West real politics. And that even as we proceed through this energy transition, uh, that this needs to remain front and center. You can read this report for yourself. It's up at McDonaldLaurier.ca. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is one of the authors of the report, Ron Wallace, former CEO, a Canadian defense manufacturer. He's a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, board member at the Canada West Foundation, uh, and also served on the National Energy Board. Joins us on the line here this afternoon, Ron Wallace. Good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Like I say, I think, you know, as we've seen the, all the fallout from the invasion of Ukraine, it, it's given energy security. I think it's easier for people to, to better understand what it means. But, I mean, how do you define it, first of all? Well, I think the, the definition around the core message of the paper <clears throat> is that the current energy transition that is underway in the West will not just be a technological event. It will involve economic, political And most importantly now, after the invasion of Ukraine shows security considerations. And we also are setting out the thought that the energy transitions will be far more difficult to achieve than most political leaders presently comprehend or are are willing to even admit. And uh, I think that when you put that, uh, that context around... Uh, the current uh, uh, political process in Canada, which is moving very aggressively down the transition uh, pathway, given events in uh, Western Europe and and in Ukraine, there may be time for some very sober reflection to be had about this process. Yeah, you know, I mean, it feels like, you know, this energy transition is is partly political at, at some level, as opposed to being purely market-driven. And I suppose, on the other hand, I mean, you know, the concept of energy security is in itself somewhat political. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, oh, very. And that's a very, very good point, Rob, that you've brought out. And it's one of the key points in the paper. What we're saying is, is that political leaders need first to consider the practicality, the feasibility, and the consequences of an excessively rapid wholesale transition of the global energy system and the economic impacts that are falling out from it. And what we're seeing is the EU is turning into a very interesting uh, predictor of of where those uh, trends are heading. And it's not just because of the Ukraine invasion. These trends started, and difficulties uh, in the energy transition started years ago, uh, but the uh, invasion that the Russians are currently doing uh, and the sanctions against Russian oil have really brought these concerns to the forefront. Right. So what are you observing in Europe? I mean, there's you know, maybe been some reconsideration of certain energy policies in some European countries. There are those who, who think that this is an excuse to, to move that transition even faster. Where, where do you see things going right you know, in Europe? Well, right now in Europe, it's just utter chaos. Uh, and 
people that suggest that you move off of hydrocarbons even faster than has been done in the past uh, are, are, are confronting a, a very serious reality. And I'll just quote you, uh, uh, just recently the United Kingdom's Energy Secretary, uh, Quantine, commented this. He said, scaling up cheap renewables and new nuclear while maximizing North Sea production is the best and only way to ensure our energy independence over the coming years. So the fact now that the UK, which has faced huge increases in their domestic energy pricing, which has caused pretty active protests throughout the United Kingdom, this is just one indication that this energy transition that's being undertaken is not going to be a smooth or an even process. And what I said, what we're saying in the paper is whether the shift away from hydrocarbons to other renewable energy forms by 2050 is it even achievable without serious economic and strategic dislocations has yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. And what, as I've just said, early signs, especially from within the European Union, are not very encouraging that this is going to be a straightforward or an easy transition. So to what extent then does uh, does this transition undermine energy security? And, and how should that affect the decisions being made in Ottawa, for example? Well, you know, you've really, you've really nailed uh, our point. And what we've done is we've tried to we've tried to point out what's happening here. We're witnessing what we termed an escalating energy war between Russia and the West. And that this energy, uh, 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 international energy uh, transport and uh, production system is currently financing Russia's military intervention in Ukraine. So here's some statistics. Bloomberg Economics estimates that in 2022, this year, Russian annual energy export earnings will amount to approximately 321 billion U.S. dollars. That's almost 850 million a day, according to the Bruegel Institute in Brussels. So what we're saying is that even with these expanded Western economic and financial section uh, sanctions, and uh, they they will be very, very much offset by the Russian energy export earnings. Now, this indicates that there are serious shortfalls in the European energy mix and that those shortfalls are not being made up by renewables. And, in fact, they can't be made up by renewables in any foreseeable uh, 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 period of time. And the Russians know this. So, in effect, over the last 20 years, uh, the uh, European Union has delivered their energy security into the hands of the Russians. And while they're debating, perhaps uh, they've, they've just uh, decided very recently to suspend coal imports. Well, they've shut down most of the thermal capacity anyways, and so that uh, may not be very difficult. But the whole concept of shutting down oil and gas in, uh, imports from Russia, quite frankly, is simply impossible without an enormous economic impact on the economies of Western Europe and perhaps on the rest of the world. So this issue that you've touched on of energy security has really leapt into the forefront. 
And any concepts that renewable systems are going to be able to step up and fill the gap, uh, even in the short term, uh, it's, it's quite, uh, uh, it's quite a leap forward. Let's put it that way. So what would you like to see in the short term? I mean, you know, the prime minister was asked some questions today about all of this, uh, whether it be, you know, increasing production, increasing exports, focusing on on infrastructure to address these short term needs. I mean, there's a key U.S. senator uh, who's been touring Alberta over the last couple of days. And, and I think that issue's uh, been front and center. So where would you like to see, you know, Canadian policy go here? Well, that's that's really the direction that we're we're going, and what we're saying is is it's time to have a little bit broader discussion about yeah. these objectives that are set out. The federal government may say that it can produce uh, extra oil and gas, but you have to remember that for the last ten years uh, uh, th- there has been a pronounced political shift away from from hydrocarbons into favoring renewable energy sources. And what we're saying is, is that when you look at insurers, bank, financial houses, and other uh, major finances for the energy system, uh, plus the regulatory mix that's befallen Canadian producers, uh, a sudden increase in production or a sudden uh, uh, capability increase for uh, transporting uh, Canadian oil anywhere other than to the south is a very, very long shot. And I think that's what uh, the energy uh, industry told the Biden administration in Washington next week. You can't have imposed all of these strictures upon the industry uh, and, and then have a whiplash effect of suddenly saying, oh my gosh, we're suddenly strategically short of resources. And here we have a situation in the United States where the strategic Reserves are, which are, which are set aside for, remember, for conflict strategic reasons are now being tapped very significantly to offset domestic supply. This is a very dangerous situation because now you're depleting your strategic reserves to fill as a band-aid gap production uh, shortfalls that are occurring right across the Western Hemisphere and in fact internationally. So, what we have said in this paper is, is that not only is this setting in motion an east-west confrontation that we're currently seeing, but it's setting into a place, a north-south confrontation, where if the large industrialized economies in North America are falling short and feeling the pain of these escalating prices, just think of the effects that it's having in third-world economies. No kidding. We'll let people know this uh, paper is online. They can read it for themselves. McDonaldLaurier.ca. Ron Wallace, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the insight. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Ron Wallace, uh, co-author of this paper for the McDonald Laurier Institute, fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, board member with the Canada West Foundation, formerly on the National Energy Board, uh, and uh, so arguing that energy security needs to be front and center as as we navigate you know this transition and, and all of these energy policy matters uh, certainly this has been a big issue and, and maybe it speaks to a broader issue right inflation the cost of living i know tomorrow we're expecting another rate increase from the bank of canada part of their response to inflation but obviously inflation is is a pretty big basket. You know, we can go through sector by sector, energy prices, housing prices, you know, there's different things going on. 
There's also food prices, and food prices uh, have been rising for a while now. And I suppose, again, there's a lot of factors there. Uh, commodity prices, and much of that linked to, to weather, natural disasters. You've got increased transportation costs, uh, increased uh, you know, heating costs, energy costs. All of that's uh, playing a factor as well. But there is one aspect to the, the food situation or the food sector that is, is driving prices up that is maybe not being focused on. And perhaps there is something uh, that could be done about this specifically. And it surrounds competition or the lack thereof. There's a lot of concentration in the food industry. You know, I, I think there's been a lot of focus uh, on the, the beef sector, for example, and how few uh, packing companies there are, processing companies there are. But it's not unique to, to beef. There's a really interesting op-ed this week in the Globe and Mail unpacking this in much more detail. You know, we got to this point where we see this concentration, the consequences of that, and maybe what can be done about it. Uh, joining us to talk more about the issue is uh, the author of this piece, uh, Anthony Winston, is a professor emeritus of sociology and anthropology at the University of Guelph, author of The Industrial Diet. Professor Winston, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, uh, good day, uh, Rob. Uh, very happy to be with you. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously a lot of this concentration isn't new in, in that it didn't necessarily arise overnight. But why no. is it manifesting in, in higher prices right now? Well, uh, you know, I think it, it's, um, it's a good question, actually. I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but, uh, you know, on top of the other issues that have come with the pandemic, uh, the supply chain issues, and uh, to some extent increasing consumer demand in some sectors, um, I think we've had, uh, you know, this is maybe prov- uh, provides a, an opportunity for certain companies to uh, sort of uh, take advantage of the situation. At least that's what's being alleged by uh, uh, consumer lawsuits, and particularly in the beef sector uh, that was launched just uh, very recently. Right. And so, you know, that, that's been an issue. Certainly in Alberta, there's been focus on that, where you've got, you know, some big companies, Cargill, Tyson, JBS, that basically control the vast majority of the, the packing and processing side of things. But as you argue in your yeah. piece, this isn't unique to, to beef, is it? No, it's not unique to beef, although perhaps it's maybe a bit more most acute there. Um, you've got some really uh, powerful global corporations in JBS uh, and in cargo operating in that sector. Um, you know, these are companies that are operating in many, many other countries, and they truly giants in the food industry. And, um, but, yes, we have concentration of, uh, of processing in the poultry sector and also in the pork processing sector and also in the food retail sector. So what's been driving that trend? Is it just a case of these big players wanting to dominate? Has it been a consequence of, of any kind of policy decision? What, what's been driving all of this consolidation? Well, it's, in a sense, it's just, uh, I think, the normal kind of uh, law of motion of the economic system that we have. Companies, um, you know, basically, although we, we think of the ideal world of, of capitalism as a, as a competitive free market, but actually it's much more in the theory of, of, a, of a company to uh, get big, large, gobble up uh, competition, 
and to reduce competition. Um, and to that increases their market power in a given sector and the ability to influence prices and ultimately the profits they'll receive. Right. And I mean, you know, you take beef, for example. I mean, even though we've got concentration between some big players, and I think the argument is, well, at least they're still competing against each other. Like, there, there's no monopoly that exists, but is, is that little uh, consolation here? Well, when you get very few players, it opens the, the uh, door to the, uh, the strong possibility that they might want to engage in price fixing. Uh, of one kind or another. And, and we've seen this elsewhere in the petroleum industry in Canada, uh, the Bertrand Commission inquiry uh, that led to, ultimately led to the conclusion of Peking Canada. Um, that that really demonstrated, I mean, that was a good, you know, some insights into what happens when you get very few players. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's not the ideal situation for those who are selling to these companies and ultimately consumers. You know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a big decision looming for the Competition Bureau having to do with, with telecom in Canada and, and how much uh, consolidation and concentration they're prepared to tolerate there. Maybe that gives us an indication, though, as to how the Competition Bureau views some of these big questions. I, I mean, until there's a, a will to address this, I mean, obviously nothing's going to happen, but is this the kind of thing that... You know, agencies like the Competition Bureau, maybe even the government itself, need to to be more involved in. Well, ideally, yes, but the problem is in Canada, uh, the Competition Bureau doesn't really have the uh, legislative powers to necessarily do very much about it, and we certainly don't have a good record in Canada of addressing um, corporate concentration or whatever sector you may look at. Uh, this is not the United States. They, they have legislation with teeth, with legislative powers to actually break up industries. They've done that many years ago to the petroleum industry, to get up in the steel industry. And Biden administration has indicated, as I indicated in my article, that they're going to go after beef processing and others because they do see them in the United States as uh, gouging consumers and um and also uh, it being unfair to uh, to ranchers and farmers and so on because of concentration in, in, in most of the basic sectors of agricultural processing in the United States. So we're really going after companies there, at least they say they are. Um, but in Canada, uh, the Competition Bureau itself has, has admitted in, uh, in a recent um, with, uh, hearing by the Industry Committee of the House of Commons, that they don't have the tools to really to deal with that, and, and also they don't have the resources. So I'm not too optimistic until that situation changes. So if there was a will, and if the tools were there, what would the solution look like? I mean, are we talking about breaking up these companies into smaller entities or building up potential competitors? Yeah, I think, well, in the United States, uh, the Biden administration is... Uh, said that they would uh, be putting a billion dollars into creating uh, alternative uh, beef packing operations that would provide more competition. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to realize in the, in the case, certainly of beef, that we're dealing with foreign corporations. So we, have, we don't have the power to break those companies up. Um, but, uh, you know, I suppose one option would be to provide... Um, uh, more uh, competition by uh, uh, 
creating the conditions for more packers to get into business. All right. We'll see what comes of all of this. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Winston, appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Rob. All the best. Take care. Anthony Winston, Professor Emeritus of uh, the University of Guelph. Uh, he's a food system analyst, author, as mentioned, uh, of the book, The Industrial Diet. His thoughts on the amount of concentration in the food sector and why that needs to be addressed if we want to target the issue of, of cost and prices. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.